this is Insomni Clepper. My name is Josh Wagner, coming to you from sunny Los Angeles, California. How does desire work? What do we desire? How can we be certain that our desires are our own? Can we attain them? Would we even want to? And what happens next? As my girlfriend suggested to me last week, in In Search of Lost Time, Marcel Proust demonstrates that all of our emotions and actions can be explained by locating the right kind of desire, be it jealous, righteous, or passionate. But does knowing this help us identify and cultivate the right kinds of desires, the ones that scorch our unconscious? Proust's characters attempt to encapsulate various visions of beauty inside of themselves. The projection of a magic lantern, a small sonata phrase, a Botticelli figure frozen in the body of a lover, the yellow tinge of a Vermeer background. But they cannot fully contain or control these aesthetic objects. There's always a truculent remainder left over, identified with the forgotten line the otherly division between life and art, the unassimilable perspective. For these characters, desire seems to function as a prolonging device, less an agenda of achievable goals than an ultimately unsatisfying mode which exists only to perpetuate itself. To actually achieve one's long-seated desires is tantamount to death. And... I believe that this is a question that is near and dear to all of our hearts. We don't just reach for a single Hershey's Kiss or a Mango High Chew. We can't just be satisfied with the latest iPhone, the newest blender, or the most aesthetic K95 mask. In René Girard's imagination, humans desire in order to transform themselves into their idols. Where Don Quixote reads Chevalier romances and Sheila Hede moves to New York for a weekend, we reach for the material which will physically transform us into someone else. Rather than distinguishing one human from the next, such objects immolate as that ownership turns sour. The Carl's Jr. burger will not actually turn you into the supermodel who is eating it, although this particular ad from my childhood is emblazoned into my memory. Or, as Proust Swan feels, it was true that Odette played vilely, but often the most memorable impression of a piece of music is one that has arisen out of a jumble of wrong notes struck by unskillful fingers upon a tuneless piano. Truth succumbs to the myth of value. Rather than as a differentiating function, desire is what makes us the same, what turns us into social intervisuals, to borrow another Gerard phrase. But what are we to make of the contradiction of the heart of desire? the paradoxical desire to prolong all desires without actually achieving anything? Is there any other way of being? To think through these questions, I've invited Todd McGowan, a professor of English and Film Studies at the University of Vermont, onto the show. Todd's expansive work moves between traditional literary studies, film theory, philosophy, aesthetics, and identity politics. His latest book on Columbia University Press, Universality and Identity Politics, traces the formation of utopian and universal political projects. For Todd, universality is less imposed on humans from above than it emerges from a shared experience and collective struggle to attain it. As he writes in the introduction, 
particular identity is a stumbling block to overcome, the sight of prejudice and unthought inclination incapable of serving as a basis for emancipation. What I immediately am is not my essential self, but instead what the ideological structure has made of me. The ghostly residue of particularity is less individual than it might seem at first. Todd's insights echo Paul Salon's Ash Glory, which I will now read. Ash glory behind your shaken, knotted hands at the three-way. Pontic erstwhile, here, a drop on the drowned rudder blade, deep in a petrified oath, it roars up. On the vertical breath rope, in those days higher than above, between two pain knots, while the glossy tartar moon, I dug myself into you, and into you. Ash glory behind you three-way hands, the cast in front of you from the east. Terrible. Nobody bears witness for the witness. Of Todd's books, I feel the most resonance with his 2019 investigation of Hegel's philosophy of contradiction, amusingly titled Emancipation After Hegel. Todd's efforts to save Hegelian dialectics from the perverting interpreters turns into an effective engagement with the possibilities of contradiction as it pervades our everyday thinking, and especially our desires. Taking contradiction as the starting point of thought itself, remember that Augustine's prayers are both blasphemously divine and utterly mortal, you are suddenly without connections, without stability, with nothing to hold you upright or in place. A dizzying, sickening unreality takes possession of you. You are threatened by a complete loss of identity a sense of utter fraudulence. You have no right to be here, now, inhabiting this body, dressed in this way. You are a nothing, and nothing is quite literally what you feel you're about to become. Welcome to the show, Todd. Hi, good to be with you, Josh. Before we get too far into it, Todd, I have to ask you, what's been the most influential or riveting work that most people haven't heard of? Haven't heard of. Wow. Okay. That's a good question. I have one actually. So uh, Johann Fichte wrote a book badly translated as the science of knowledge, but that's what it's translated as. The German is the Wissenschaftslehre, but I think that's a book that a lot of people haven't heard of that I think is one of the most important books ever written. Yeah. So what does Fichte mean to you? Why has his book been the most influential? So Fichte was the first thinker to think about subjectivity as producing its own reality and that the reality comes out of the way that the subject conceives itself. And then the other thing that he uncovered, I think, is the importance of some kind of limit or blockage in the way in which the subject, what he calls, posits itself. And so for him, it's that limit point. His term in German is Anstoss, which is a hard German word to translate because it means at one an obstacle and an impetus. So we don't have a, German has a lot of these words that mean opposite things. In English, we, we lack them. I think that idea, just that idea of the anstos, the thing that would block our desire, but also propels our desire. I think that's an incredible idea. And the fact that he generated that in 1794. So it's pretty incredible how early he came up with that. Thanks for that, Todd. And before we get too far into my questions, 
I'm curious if you could just talk a little bit about your career. I know you started off as a literature scholar before moving more into film theory and now coming back around to Hegel, aesthetics, Marx. Has there been any logic or sense to your trajectory? Right. So I actually started, I was an English PhD. My first book is on literature stuff, which I hope no one will ever read. And then I turned to film just because my spouse is a film PhD. And so I got into it that way. And I found that it was a good way to think about the issues that I wanted to think about. But I always was interested in philosophical questions. And so I read Hegel as a PhD student, and I always wanted to write a book on Hegel, but I never thought I could. And I was always interested in questions of capitalism. And I, I thought about it through film. And then I finally like kicked the ladder out and I got rid of the film. I mean, I still talk about film a lot, but I don't think I'll ever write another just pure film book. I probably shouldn't say that because I might, but I just thought it was too confining to think about this questions through film only. And so that's when I started to write. And then people, they read them. And so that was nice. And and then I felt like I could keep on writing those books. And so everyone has been a, something that I really have been attached to, like with a lot of passion. Like I'd say the one that most is the core of me is the book on comedy. I've always loved jokes and comedy and I strive to be as funny as I can. I know it's not coming across here at all, but uh, I really work on jokes in class and stuff. I, I prepared for that book by teaching two classes on comedy and that those were, it was amazing. Do you have a favorite joke that you tell to your classes? Yeah, I do. So I didn't come up with this joke on my own. But so this priest is walking from the monastery on one side of town to a convent on the other side of town. He has to go through the downtown and he walks, starts to walk to the downtown and he, he runs some woman comes up to him and she says $20 for a quickie. And he's like, the priest is discombobulated. He doesn't know what she's talking about. And so he just kind of walks away and he goes, another woman comes up to him as he's walking further and goes $20 for a quickie. The priest, again, he's kind of doesn't know what to think. And he finally gets to the convent. He says the mother superior what's a quickie? And she says, it's $20, just like in downtown. And that's probably my favorite joke. I start off my comedy book with a golf joke that my dad told me. I love golf jokes, but any jokes I'm pretty much game for. And my kids are, I have twin boys and they love to come up with jokes themselves. Yeah. And can you talk a little bit about the seriousness of comedy? Yeah, I, I like that idea a lot that comedy is serious. I guess for me, my theory of comedy is that it brings together our lacking and our excess. And these things for me are what that relationship is what constitutes us as subjects. And so the seriousness of comedy is that it really shows us what we really are. That everyday life, my argument is that it splits those things. It never allows lack and excess to come together and comedy allows them to come together. And so it's really, I think, a philosophical experience of what it means to be a subject is what we experience when we experience comedy. I'm also very interested in your idea of contradiction, and it seems like contradiction comes up in a few different ways. Uh, for one, in paradoxical German words, and another through comedy's combination of desire and lack. And I'm curious if you can speak more generally about what contradiction can do for you as a concept that maybe other ideas can't, and also about the, how pervasive contradiction is. Yeah, definitely. I think for me, it's interesting. So Hegel, as I read him, thinks that the highest point that we can get to philosophically is to reconcile ourselves to contradiction. And he even thinks of that as a political ideal as well, or a political practice. And it's interesting because for Marx, contradiction is really important. So the contradictions of capitalist society are really what he's analyzing, and I think incredible way. But I think the limitation of Marx is that he imagines communist society as an overcoming of contradiction. Whereas for 
for me, and I think this is Hegel's point too, that actually contradiction is the stuff of our existence. And so the idea of overcoming it would, I mean, of course we could overcome class struggle and, and create a society without classes, I think, but contradiction would be heightened. And so my idea is that, and I think this is Hegel's idea, that contradiction is what enlivens us and it's failure of any, us to ever come to self-identity, to create harmony, to all these things. And so that's how I see Hegel and psychoanalysis really linked because for psychoanalysis, our, as desiring subjects, we're always out of joint with ourselves. And I think that's the self-contradiction. Can you say more about this idea of contradiction as the frustration of desire? On a very basic everyday level, and this might be a little bit silly, it seems as though desires can be fulfilled. If I want a chocolate bar, I can run downstairs and grab a chocolate bar. So there's some kind of cognitive distance between this everyday understanding of desire and your idea that desire is perpetually frustrated. Yeah, yeah, that's very good. So let's just take the chocolate bar example. So I'm a desiring being. I think the chocolate bar is going to satisfy that desire and it tastes nice and it's fine, but then it leaves me still desiring after I have it. That's because I'm a contradictory subject. And so what that means for psychoanalysis is that there's always this unconscious dimension to my desire. So even though the chocolate bar may be what I consciously am thinking I want, there's an unconscious desire that's not satisfied by that object that is seeking even further further or something. And, and really what it's seeking is to continue its dissatisfaction. It finds satisfaction in its continually, this continual process of desire. And for me, that's really the basic contradiction of subjectivity that we're on the one hand trying to get things like chocolate bars or new cars or a better job or a better spouse. And then on the other hand, we're, maybe I shouldn't have said better spouse, my spouse is really good. But on the other hand, we're undermining that and we're finding satisfaction in the undermining and that self undermining is the basic. So that's that's the psychoanalytic notion of death drive, but I think that's the Hegelian idea of contradiction. Yeah. And has realizing this contradiction changed your own relationship with desire? I don't think it rescues you from desire. I think that is, it does change your relationship. And I have a couple of examples. Like I think, for instance, our, we have a kind of a junky Prius as our car. And I got in a little accident. Somebody smashed into the back of me at a red light. And I thought the fact that the car is junky is actually good. Person's like, I'm so sorry. I'm like, no big deal. I'm not hurt. The car is not going to get any worse. So it's fine. So that relationship to the object. So I could just not worry about that. And then I think also things that annoy me or about people that I live with, like the things that annoy me when I'm feeling annoyed, I think, oh, well, wait a minute. That thing that annoys me is very linked to the thing that I actually love about this person. So for instance, like if someone, I don't know, always leaves the lights on, like that lack of concern for like every single little detail, well, that's part of their way in which they care more about people than about little obsessive details like that, like I am. Those would be a couple of examples of the way in which I've felt my own self as a desiring subject changed by that understanding. It almost seems like you're making this aesthetic point. There's something about capital because the one desire ease and smoothness and things that can't harm us. There's these moments, these like fragments that make you realize if there is danger that everything isn't always easy, how do you become more comfortable with that? Yeah, I really love the way you put it. I like this idea of it thinking about it aesthetically, because I think that paying attention to the aesthetic is really important for there's an ethical dimension, political dimension to paying attention to the aesthetic. Yeah, I don't know. I think a lot of my friends who are actual practicing analysts would say you have to go into analysis. I'm not against that. I think that's maybe true, but I, I guess I think there's a value in recognizing a kind of structure that you have and then thinking through it. And then I think also putting into practice, paying attention to little moments 
moments and then practicing like shifting your way of perceiving those moments. I think that's the key, right? Like how can you shift? It can just be a slight shift. And, you know, Walter Benjamin said that, and he said utopia would be everything as it is slightly different. And I kind of like that. That's all that it takes in terms of desire, just this slight adjustment. You no longer think like that object is going to save me or is going to provide me this ultimate satisfaction. Instead, you see the partiality of the satisfaction within it. Yeah. And I guess talking more generally about contradiction, I'm also really curious in that contradiction is also like the logic of capital. One example is Banksy made this piece of artwork that destroyed itself as soon as it was sold on selfies. And then the destroyed art was worth more than the initial one that sold. Any kind of resistance you have to empire, whatever you want to call it, it becomes totalized into the system. And so is this the same kind of contradiction we see that you're talking about with Hegel and Desire? Yeah, that's a, I think that's a great example. One of my points in my book on capitalism is about the way it, it takes advantage of our desire, right? Like it it takes advantage of the very contradictory structure of our desire. And this notion of appropriation, I think, is really important. The way things that seem opposed get brought in. And I think that the way in which nothing can be just purely opposed to it just shows how there's no contradiction that's too hard for it to integrate, which I think is maybe something that Marx didn't think about, right? Like he didn't think about how even if the contradiction is even evident destructive that capitalism can even include that. Although I do think it's wrong to think there's no possibility of getting out of capitalism because I think there's more and more dissatisfaction to go back to that word with that the capitalist structure today. So I, I don't know. I mean, I think that there are possibilities. I think it's not about creating a new outside, but it's finding a way to shift the very structure itself and how we relate to the structure. And I think how we desire is really important in that, I think. Yeah, so within this logic, capital seems to be a thing that perpetuates contradiction. And so I'm curious how you respond to a capitalist realist line, just the thought being that because the, the logic of capital is a logic of contradiction, there's no way out. I agree that it's not possible to overcome contradiction, but I certainly think it's possible to overcome capitalism. I think if capitalism has a birthday, it can have a death date too, just like all of us. So I just think that that's a very ahistorical way to think about it. Like if you think about it, it clearly has a, a moment of origin. The point in my book is really that it, it's outlived its moment of death, but I still think it has one. I mean, hopefully it won't destroy the planet along with itself, which is of course possible. Yeah, and I guess the other side of this is accelerationism and people like Nick Land who believe that you have to accelerate the contradiction within capitalism until the entire system explodes. Right. Interesting because one of my twin boys is a little seduced by accelerationism. And, and so I, I guess I understand the position. I think it's in some ways a doctrinaire Marxist position. You know, I mean, that's Marx's idea that you go through and that, and, and this certainly Deleuze and Guattari as well. But I guess I feel like that position fails to see the role of the negative. And this is my investment in Hegel and psychoanalysis. I think that the negative is the only way out of something. It can't just be a positive movement through. There has to be also this gesture of negation to get out of it. Yeah, so I guess on this question of negation, I'm very reminded of like Western legal codes, like the Ten Commandments, which tell you what you should not do rather than what you should do. And like maybe part of this is that there's an acknowledgement that values shift over time and I tell you who you should be in 1800. Obviously, it's not going to apply in the same way 200, 1,000 years later. But I am wondering if there's some kind of binary logic here by like defining yourself by what you are not. It seems not that different from defining yourself in a positive way. 
Yeah, no, I think that's right. I guess I would distinguish between creating an identity through saying what you're not, and then this fundamental negation that I would identify with subjectivity itself. So, I mean, I think someone could say back to me, that's just a bogus distinction, but I think it's important because I think that the fundamental negation of subjectivity isn't a negation of anything particular. It's just a basic negation. And so it's not like you're trying to escape something else. And I, I do think it's important. It's a negation within the subject. And I think this is really important that there's not a external enemy. And I think one of the things Hegel constantly does is take this structure that seems like it has an external enemy and then show how it's actually this internal conflict within the subject's own way of conceiving things that actually produces the external. And like I think today you can see this politically with fundamentalism, which seems like it's this external thing to the structure of global capitalism is actually the product of global capitalism. A lot of people have said this, but I think this is a way in which you can see that the seeing the structure as internally contradictory rather than accepting this external opposition. I feel like that's a really important political step. I guess I'm also wondering whether contradiction can provide a positive view of like selfhood or identity or universality. That's the wager of the book that he mentioned. Yeah, that I think because there's always something missing or absent within the social symbolic structure, that's the point of universality. And so I think of that as a very positive conception of universality, that that's what can unite us all together. Yeah, and there's a, a way in, in which contradiction is connected to this idea of like speculative thinking or possibility or futures. I think your, your example is Christ on the cross is both divine and human at the same time. You, you can't choose one. There is one reality. You, you, have to, you, have, you have to make a choice. I go to grad school. I get up at 8 a.m. every morning. I'm going to eat bok choy for dinner. One question I have here is, is there something contradictory about these everyday choices that I'm not seeing? Or how does this like, idea of contradiction help us understand life in a more like, personal level? I think there is, you know, in every choice, there's this contradiction. And I think it comes down to the way in which we desire and the way in which once the object is satisfying, and then at the same time, it's not. So that way of grasp, it's a way to understand every single experience, actually, that there is something that is what we desire in that object. And then there's also something that's not. So even if it's the bok choy or the whatever, the bowl of Fruit Loops in the morning, even those things, they have a double structure to them. And I mean, this is Hegel's point, I think, which is really good. Like he takes in the book on Hegel, I I play this out in contrast to Anne Rand, who I think is the great apostle of capitalism. I mean, a lot of people don't think she's much of a thinker at all, but I think she's important for the way that she lays out the capitalist philosophy. And one of the things she says is absolute law is A equals A, right? This idea that there is a law of identity. And that's the very thing that Hegel says is not true because he says, once you lay out A equals A, there's a disjunction because the two things are articulated separately. That for him is the thing that just can't be true. And once you refuse that, I think you're implicitly refusing the capitalist structure because I think capitalism depends on what Rand says of this A equals A. I also think there's a way in which language models this A equals A form of thinking or language in like a very static sense in which there's a dictionary out there, there are words, there are definitions, each word corresponds to a different definition. And I'm wondering maybe part of the difficulty of expressing contradiction language is how do you think or how do you write impossibility through the possible? 
I think you're right to pick this out because I think that it is true that there is a kind of way in which language resists articulating contradictions. I think Leibniz is the first one to really talk about A equals A in a, in a sustained way. And I think there is a way in which language does resist contradiction. But I think the very thing that we were talking about in the beginning about Fichte and, and the word anstus, there's a way in which it also does articulate contradiction perfectly. These words that mean the opposite. And so even though in English, I think we're impoverished relative to German with those, I still think there are enough of them or the even the even the way the homophone works, right? The same word that can have opposite or not even opposite, but just different meanings. So I think there is a way in which contradiction is articulated in the language if we pay attention to it. But I do think you're right that the logic of language mitigates against recognizing contradiction as fundamental. Yeah, and there's a sense in which this vision of creativity is a bit random. Your prog, your environment, who your parents were, who your friends were growing up, what kinds of books you read. I'm curious of how much control anyone can have over the future. Does this vision of creativity wedge you to a sense of determinism that you can never overcome? I think that's right. And but I think what's interesting is you can have all these determining factors and then something else can happen. I was like born to be, I think, a not very thoughtful football player. My grandfather handed me a football when I was came out of my mom's womb. And so he like programmed me to be that. And then other things intervened. And so I think it's possible to break from that. But I think you're right. There are all this, all this weight that's put on us. So in almost no way we constitute ourselves as subject. But then there's the moment where we can just toss everything aside. And do something else. I mean, that I think is is the essence of freedom, right? The ability to abandon things. I would love your use of the word abandon there, both in the sense of casting off, but also of creating something new. And to change gears a little bit, what is life to you? To me, being a living, examined being is the ability to grasp yourself as contradictory. And I think that, that that's what other beings lack. Like they, Hegel says, they, they just suffer and die from contradiction. We can actually grasp its constitutive role for us. I feel like that that is, for me, what existence is. It's once you grasp that, it is the ability to let, to let the things that have shaped you go. And I think that's really, really crucial. So thinking about that model of subjectivity, it seems that in our own time, there is nothing to do. All these systems of government, of life, are all locked in place. And it seems that in the same motion in which you can create your life, it is just as easy to uncreate your life. And so I'm curious from your perspective, what is there left to do? It's interesting because those two levels are at odds with each other, right? Like, so on the on the individual level, it seems like there are clearer things you can do. And I, I do like your point that the sine qua non of freedom is suicide, right? Like, I think that's really, I mean, I'm obviously <laughs> against it, but I do think that the possibility is really the essence of freedom. And But I think your point is that also that on the, on the larger political level, we live in such a depressing time because the way in which capital is so monolithic and, and the way in which its destructiveness has become even more apparent than ever, I would say. So I think the political has to be just, we just have to struggle in that re region. There is freedom. Like I do think that it's not, it's not like capital is determining things. I think that there are always, and I think this is both its strength and its weakness. There are op openings within the capitalist structure where we can intervene and change it.
One thing I've been thinking about recently is this idea of tearing down statues of problematic and colonial figures. And in the same motion, the act of tearing down a statue seems symbolic, as though tearing down the physical structure itself would also tear down the social structure which allowed that person to propagate in society. And there does seem to be some kind of contradiction, or at least tension, between this very radical action which is supposed to achieve all this change, but at the same time, it's just some wood falling to the ground. And I'm curious... Um, what happens next? What's supposed to happen after the statue comes down? Yeah, there is a tension there for sure. I mean, I, I think it, it's interesting because those actions can go either way, right? On the one hand, just like you're saying, they could be this instigator or, or even symbol of radical change. But on the other hand, you can see how a structure can just allow these things to be toppled down and just totally remain in place. And so all you've done is just move some wood or some cement around, right? So I think that's a great example of the way in which it's up for grabs. And so I think that is really where freedom lies. Like, can you make tearing down of the statue really mean something structurally significant, or is it just going to be a purely formal gesture that has no substantive impact? So I think that that's a, it's a, it's a, such a great example of the way in which it's open. Like the gesture itself is a radical one, but it's, it's only radical when it is accompanied by the fundamental structural change, which not necessarily is. So Robespierre and, and Saint-Just thought, we're going to go through this revolutionary period, and then we're going to set up a new structure. And Saint-Just, who was basically the, the disciple of, of Robespierre in other ways, he thought, no, 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 the revolution means you're constantly in this revolutionary moment. And so I think that's kind of what you're suggesting. Do you stay in this some kind of revolutionary moment? Is that the move? Or is the point to just get through the other side and create a new everyday life? I think that's a really fundamental question. And I, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of more sympathetic to Saint-Just's point that you should change the very way we have of being and not get back to the old ordinary, right? Like to have your everyday be charged with the very idea of the revolution all the time. Yeah, and I almost see that there are two paths for the revolutionary. One is the person who goes to the street, marches, takes part in these violent protests. And the other is the person who sees what's going on around him and decides to vote herself to very boring bureaucratic work, whether becoming a civil servant, whether public engineer, doing public art, and spending devoting 10, 20, 30 years of life, something I have no conception of as a 22-year-old, to becoming one of the anonymous mass who will hopefully have a real change, even if their name will be trending on Twitter. You know, maybe those kind of people are the biggest change figures of all. Being willing to work anonymously within a structure, I think, is really an important political gesture. I think we think too much of demonstrations in the streets really making change, but I think I think they absolutely believe the change has to be within the structure and not just toppling the structure down. I also changing years again. I'm really I was really interested in your idea of the lost highway, like switching between bodies between who people people are and so in your introduction to universality and politics you write that by making me other than what i immediately am the universal opens up the possibility for me to act freely to act against what my ideological programming tells me to do and i'm wondering if this is just a rhetorical vice or in other words how you can actually imagine the experience of someone else for me i have a very poor imagination for what it's like to live otherwise i have no idea what it's like to be like a farmer in iowa or someone living in florida or a single mother of 10 in western europe and so i'm just struggling with this idea that there is some kind of universality that connects us all. Like I think of like Nagel's bad example, that whenever I think of being someone else, it's always my vision of what that person is versus what that person actually is in their own like, totality.
I would say, yeah, that's true. I don't think anyone can really imagine themselves into the experience of the other. But I think the, the point of what I was saying there is that you also can't even relate to your own experience directly, right? There's this interrupt. You relate to your own experience through the universal. And so I think that disjunction is present equally for you and in your relationship to others. So for me, that's the real crucial thing. I don't care really that I can't you know, imagine myself in this other situation because I can't even imagine myself in my situation, that, that there's this split within me that's mediated through universality. And so that, I think that's the thing that connects us. So the farmer in Iowa, her inability to be herself, that relates to my inability to be myself. For me, that's the connection. It's not, oh, can I really understand what that person's going through? Because I don't think that's universality. That's some kind of empathy or something. I mean, empathy is fine, but I don't think, for one thing, I think there's a radical limit to it. The second thing is I don't think that it has necessarily any political potential because it's almost a moral category. So I, I feel like universality is a distance, really, a split, the thing that gets in the way of me directly being myself, just like that gets in the way of me perceiving what others are. Yeah, and I'm really interested in this intersection of universality, identity, and for lack of a better word, eocentrism. And I'm wondering whether this idea of universalism is just another code word for European hegemony, this idea of parentalized Europe that's been extended to the entire world. So for me, that if universality is tied to what's missing, then it's not. And I, in the book, I, I relate, contrast what I see of universality to what I call the master signifier. I mean, it's not my term. The master signifier is French psychoanalyst Jacques Lacan's term. And so a master signifier would function, like you said, like it's the European value that we're going to export. It's a European idea. It's a cultural thing. And for me, universality is what's not included in culture. Universality, just like I talked about the individual, universality would get in the way of Europe being Europe. And that disjunct that failure is true in wherever else. It's true in Haiti. I, I talk a little bit about the revolution in Haiti, but it's true in Turkey. It's true in Brazil. It's true everywhere. This, this inability of those places, those states to be themselves is the same as, as we see in Europe. So I, I think that for me, that's the reason why it's, there's nothing imperial about universality. And I think there's another thing I, I maybe spent too long in the book talking about, but I feel like that was the great 20th century mistake was to see universality as imperial and and colonial. It can never be that because it's not something we have. It's rather something that undermines what we have. Yeah. And I absolutely love this point about the co-optation of universalism. I think this is your point in your book, but thinking it's just about the iPhone user who uses the internet, uses their iPhone to reveal the complicity and exploitation at the heart of that device. And I'm curious for you, what are the stakes of revealing that contradiction, that kind of exploitation within a system that you are complicit in our an active part of. Can you talk more about making it evident? One example of this is that I go to these Stockley Senate meetings sometimes about divestment from fossil fuels. And I think the the claim that's always lodged that even if we divest symbolically from fossil fuels or divest our endowments from fossil fuels, we like use cars, we turn on lights, we're, we're still implicated in the system in any way. And it's really an ineffectual gesture that's contradicted by our just being alive. I was at a college in the late 1980s and they divested from South Africa and it was a huge, it seems silly now, like not much of a political movement compared to the other anti-war movements of the 60s and 70s, but they were pretty invested in the idea, <laughs> sorry, so to speak, uh, invested in the idea of divestment. And that symbolic gesture actually, I mean, I'm not going to say that that toppled apartheid, but I think all those gestures put together helped to have an impact. And obviously it was the, the activists that really did it, but nonetheless, I think that that showed that the 
world was supporting them. And so I feel like like that seems to me a good example of the way just changing up the relation to our how we're investing our money has some ability to have some effect. So I, I think I think there is something to it. I do think there's of course this danger that you're we're just going to do this and then we're not going to do other things. So if we're still doing other things, if we're doing other things, then I think it's good and can be effectual. Yeah, and I guess I'm curious about the stakes of death in terms of contradiction. So it seems that the death of a single life would end the contradictions in that life. And so something like the heat death in universe might also end contradiction itself. The heat death of the universe, I think, would be the, the, would be the end of contradiction if nothing can move anymore. You shouldn't think that you're going to be relieved from contradiction and after you're dead because you know, God's, all of God's manifestations are heavily involved with contradiction. They're what we impute to God. So that's the only thing I think about death is I think we wrongly, I think, fantasize that we get out of it. We go through death, we escape contradiction. But I think only if death is final do you really escape it. And I'm really drawn to this idea of loving failure, just the idea that there can be beauty in something totally falling apart. You're always frustrated in your desires or that you, you imagine, like, what if I messed up? So I think people talk to bomb diffusers in the military who, after doing 5,000 proper refusals, are wondering, what if I, I messed up? What if I clip the wrong wire? And I, I think about it. I like, hover the scissors over the wrong wire. And this, this is when they get out of the field. They know to find a new job. I'm just really drawn to this idea about the possibility of failure or that even when you are doing the thing properly, there's still this perpetual desire to have it otherwise. Right. I mean, that's a great example of the way your conscious wish and unconscious desire are at odds with each other. And you get out of the job when your conscious wish seems to be losing the battle, right? Like I used to, when I was in college, I guess I would drink a lot and I worked at this building. I was a janitor. And so we would, we would get drunk. We would go to the building. We'd go up to the top of the roof. We'd see how far out we could go from our heels, like how much of our foot we could put on the edge. And we would have died if we would have fallen off. And I think, my God, that's just such stupidity. But I think that that's just, sh- I think that's not as bad as the bomb diffuser situation. But I think it's nonetheless, I think there is this incredible self-destructiveness because I think that that's where we get closest to what we desire. And that's for me, the crucial thing that, that through destruction or through loss, you actually birth in a way what you're desiring. And so for me, I love the bomb diffuser example. And I think that's, it's almost misleading because it's so obvious. Like, and I think most of the rest of us, we're doing it in these little marginal ways that, you know, you don't notice it's maybe stupid and obvious, but you keep going out with someone who's bad for you, right? So that's destructiveness. It seems like it's happening to you. Like, I just keep picking the wrong person. Why is that? And then that's another example of that same kind of thing. Like you have this struggle between conscious wish and unconscious desire all all the time. Todd, what keeps you up at night? Death keeps me up at night quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. I've always, I had terrible from the time I was maybe five years old, like I was stayed up at night and my mom, I remember that she tried to comfort me. She came in and she's like, no, it'll be, a, we were fundamental. She came, she's like, no, no, it'll be okay. We'll be in heaven. And then I'm like, okay, that lasted for about 10 minutes. And then I started to cry again. And, and, and I said, well, what, what will we do for eternity? That seems horrible. Uh, and she didn't, she's like, I, I, you're, I don't have an answer for that. So, so she's like, God will keep it exciting. That's what she said to me. So that, I didn't find that totally satisfying. So since then I've, 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 I don't sleep well. So that's, uh, so. And as a closing segment, can I ask you some underrated, overrated questions? Yeah, great. Okay. I love these kind of questions. 
The first one's Vermont. Underrated, even though it's highly. I know people really rate it highly, but I think in when you live here, it's 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 like. Uh, in fact, I think it's bad for a theorist to live here because it's too. It's very. You think life is pretty good when you live here, and people are nice. Every it's an incredible kind of like communal. Yeah, it's hard to think here. Where's the best place for you to think? Well, I think the most the place that's the most horrible, like Texas. I, I taught in Texas for three years. It was horrible. And that was a good, it spurred me on to get out of there. <laughs> what about car accidents? Underrated. Yeah. I think they can really be instructive as long as they're not fatal. <laughs> Modernity. Underrated. Underrated for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I think we should talk about it nonstop all the time. Why? Oh, because I think the change that modernity uh, brings with it, this interruption, that's what I was going to say, this interruption of, of traditional society. I don't think we've even yet measured the extent of its of the shift that happens in modernity. What about Hegel? <laughs> I probably overrate him, but uh, I'm obviously for the society, I think he's underrated. I think he should be the state philosopher of every of every <laughs> every country. What about wallpaper? Wallpaper? Oh, overrated. Who cares? I'm against any kind of decorations on them. What about Emmanuel Levinas? Overrated. Yeah, yeah. Levinas overrated. I have a friend here, a professor in the religion department who loves Levinas, and he would be very, very upset if he heard me say that. But I think all the philosophy, all that whole phenomenological tradition is overrated. Can you say more about your gripes with phenomenology? Yeah, sure. Like from Husserl to Heidegger to Levinas. And I think, I, I mean, if it were me, I would say the great figure in that tradition is Jean-Paul Sartre. And I think he's, ironically, of all those four I mentioned, I think he's the lowest in the public esteem today. And I would put him at the highest. My idea would be that phenomenology actually hinders his ability to really come to the ideas that he already is thinking. To me, he's, I don't know, maybe I think he's the one of the great thinkers of the 20th century. And I think he's radically underrated today. So that I would put, I think he's probably, I mentioned Fichte's book at the beginning. And I think Fichte is terribly underrated, but I think Sartre is the most underrated philosopher for nothing else than for his influence on psychoanalysis and Lacan and, and a lot of thinkers in the psychoanalytic tradition. So, What exactly is wrong with phenomenology itself? It takes, it's what we were talking about with experience, right? It, it takes experience as its point of departure, and thus it misses the way in which we're alien from our own experience. So I think that's a huge problem. It doesn't really have a proper theory of alienation, even when, I mean, Sartre is the best on this, but even he, I think, is limited by his, his phenomenological tendency. So that's a problem. And I think, to me, the this attitude infiltrates even novels and cinema. I hate these films that, that are just trying to give you an experience. So they don't have an idea. Idea. They just want to thrust you into an experience like the film Saving Private Ryan. The first 30 minutes are just, can we give the spectator an experience of D-Day? Well, okay, so what? I just feel like that's a, such a big nothing. And so I feel like phenomenology and those kind of films just fail to see this fundamental split in the subject and reckon with it. Thank you so much for talking to me for the past hour. I really appreciate it. Oh, Josh, it was my pleasure. Absolutely. Thanks for, thanks for putting up with me.